As we come now before God's word, if you'd like to read with me, I'll be reading out of the book of Hebrews in chapter 3. That's Hebrews chapter 3. And as you turn there, would you please pray with me? Lord, we know that at this time of year when the clocks have turned overnight, that we often wake up a little well, confused or sleepy. (laughs) Lord, as we sit now before the hearing of your word, would you break any resistance that we might have now to it? Would you waken up our minds, set aside any hardness of our hearts, and would you help us to believe your word is life for us? you guide us now by your spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be here in Hebrews chapter 3. I want to catch the very end of last week, so we'll begin in verse 6 and read through the end of the chapter. It's a number of verses, I know, but, but we can handle it. This is Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 6. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This is God's word. Now, we know by now, we've been in Hebrews for a couple of months here, one of the main goals of the book of Hebrews is to exhort, or if you want a less fancy word, to urge us to hold fast to Jesus 
because Jesus is better. And so he's trying then to help draw us near to Christ in a true heart and full assurance of faith. And the ways that the author does this is through wooing and warning. The wooing then, there are sections that draw us in to see the beauty of Jesus and the rest that comes with that. We'll talk about that rest more next week. But there are also warnings in Hebrews, sections where we see the danger of neglecting Jesus and the wrath that comes with that. The section that we just read is one of the warning passages. And as we read it, you can probably hear that it takes a very somber tone. Um, As part of just reading through and working through the book of Hebrews just on my own, I've been listening to an an album by a band that has set the entire book of Hebrews to music. Uh, Laura is tired of hearing me talk about this. I'm just in love with it. And the previous section, the song about the, the section that I preached on last week where we consider Jesus is just this lovely, simple, beautiful guitar. It's soaring. It starts ding, 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 ding. It's very bright, simple, light. But then in this section, the song changes and the tone shifts and the strings lay in, the violins, the cellos. There's a solo, a lone trumpet. This is an ominous section in a minor key. And the author warns us here, mostly by reminding us of the people of God's rebellion against God in the wilderness. He quotes in this section multiple times from Psalm 95, which also, by the way, Psalm 95 woos and warns us. So Psalm 95 starts with this very large, lofty call to worship. It's lovely. In fact, it was our call to worship uh, this morning. Come, let's sing to the Lord. Come, let's, let's give him thanksgiving in his presence. Come, let's worship and bow before the Lord, our maker. We're his sheep and the, and the people of his pasture. It's lovely. And then there's an abrupt shift. And he says, don't harden your hearts. This will be a barrier to your coming. Don't harden your hearts as the people did at Meribah and Massa. Now, what's that? So this is calling back even earlier in the time of the people of God. This is an exodus after they've come out of Egypt, but before they've come into the promised land. So they're wandering then in the wilderness. And the people of God have run out of water or are close to it. And so because of this, they get thirsty, cranky, and they quarrel with Moses. They grumble against him. In fact, Moses says they're so angry with him that they're ready to stone him. And so he prays before the Lord about what to do. And the Lord tells Moses to strike the rock, which he does before the people. And out of the rock gushes water for them. 
It was God's grace. And yet that place was called Meribah, which means quarreling, or Massa, which means testing, that they tested God because they questioned if the Lord was with them. So the psalmist then says the issue in that circumstance was not primarily their dry throats. It was not even primarily about the words that they grumbled or the threats that they made against Moses. It was about the hearts that had become hardened against the Lord. I love Play-Doh. There's a shift. <laughs> Transitions. I love Play-Doh. I've got a kid. It's soft, it smells good, probably even tastes good. <laughs> but we all know if you leave Play-Doh out, it hardens and it becomes worthless. It crumbles like sand. Here, we're encouraged then to soften our hearts so that we would not be like dried Plato, so that we would be able to be molded by God into the people that he has made us to be. So the author, takes, uh, author of Hebrews now takes all of this history of Israel, the psalmist writing about these events in Exodus, and drops all of this right in our lap, cautioning us with the very same things. Do not harden your heart. He says it multiple ways throughout here. Don't harden your heart. He also says, don't go astray in your heart. Watch in yourself for an evil, unbelieving heart. The summary of a heart like this, he says at the very end in the last verse, so they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This is a heart of unbelief, and he wants us to see the danger and tragedy of a heart like that. So as Christians faithful followers of Jesus who are walking by his power and spirit, we might take, if we are wise, uh, we might take great care to guard ourselves against particular sins, particular tendencies in our own lives. So we might uh, take special care to guard ourselves against things like lust, things like greed, things like foolish talk, or laziness, or on the flip side, overwork. We guard ourselves against these particular sins, and, and, and that's good. We need to be guarded against them. But do we take great care to guard ourselves against the tragic sin of unbelief? The scripture takes this issue very seriously. In fact, Paul, we could go any number of places, but this, I think, is one of the most stunning. Paul talks about this in the book of Romans in chapter 11 as he discusses um, olive trees and, and branches connected to them. He says this in Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 19. He writes this, Then you will say, Branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That's true. 
They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So don't become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note, then, the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen. But God's kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. The author of Hebrews then says, watch yourselves for this. Watch for a heart of unbelief so that you are not one of the ones who falls away. We don't want to be like the rocky soil when Jesus tells the parable that many of us are familiar with. Once you receive the word with joy and spring up, but there's no root of genuine faith. And so when trials come, they fall away. When they lose a job or a client or a crop, they fall away when they're left without the support of family or friends, they fall away. Or when life is not just unfolding as we had hoped, they fall away. Like a leaf off of a tree or a branch even snipped from the trunk, they fall away from the living God. And I don't know about you, but a passage like that gives me the shivers. This might cause us to tremble and even maybe to doubt, question our own salvation, to wonder if I am even saved by God at all. Can I have any assurance or know that I have faith? Or am I just supposed to try to love Jesus, do my best to trust God, and then cross my fingers that when I die, it'll turn out all right in the end? I grew up in a church context where we had altar calls at the end of our worship services. We don't do things like that. If you don't know what that is, that's okay. Uh, We could do something like that, but we don't. Um, And and this altar call was a, a chance for people to provide a public profession of faith, to say, yes, I believe. And I remember, even as a young person, feeling this fear almost sometimes a desire to go to the altar again and again and again because I wonder if it really took. Did I really mean it before? Do I actually even believe? The Bible tells us that a believer in Jesus 
whether he always feels it or not, can have confidence now in this life. We do, as Christians, have confidence now. The author of Hebrews even will talk about it plenty. In coming chapters, he talks about how we have full assurance of hope until the end. We have full assurance of faith in this life. We are adopted now as sons and daughters of God. All of this is in line with things like when Jesus is talking about us as his sheep. And he says, we are his and no one can snatch us out of his hand. Add to that the hundreds upon hundreds of passages that talk about God's people as ones who are chosen by him. God's people are chosen before the foundation of of the world. They are chosen before they even choose God or even can choose God, and God will not unchoose those whom he has appointed to eternal life. So there is assurance in Jesus, but if it's true that we have assurance in Jesus, why then is the author giving us all this talk about falling away It almost seems like he's trying purposefully to shake my confidence, trying to ruin my assurance, trying to make me doubt. And and if I doubt my salvation, does that mean that I don't believe? Does that mean that I'm experiencing a hardening or I'm going astray? Does that mean I have fallen away from faith and fallen away from the living God? Why is the author of Hebrews scaring me like this? When I was in college, I took a road trip to Alaska. I spent a summer there. Uh, and, and the journey to get there, the drive, was something like 65 hours nonstop. Best and worst thing of my life. Uh, two cars in my small group, two cars, two people in each car. And we were two hours into this very long journey. And I'm chatting with the guy next to me, getting to know him as I'm just following the car in front of me. And I watched the car in front of me pull off the highway onto the shoulder and then continue to pull off the shoulder into the dirt and continue to drive off into the ditch without even stopping the brake lights as I'm now beginning to shout and scream, what are you doing? Eventually they uh, stopped and slowed down. The car was fine. Uh, they, They were fine, but the driver had fallen asleep. And there was no rumble strip on the shoulder to wake him up. That's what the Lord is doing here in Hebrews. He doesn't throw these things in as a snake in the grass to scare us. He puts these things in as a rumble strip on the side of the road to guide us so that we will not end up in the ditch. And if you are a Christian... If you are a believer in Jesus, these rumbles will bring you back to the straight road. They will. 
Jesus will use and use these things to waken your heart to faithfulness so that you won't be hardened, so that you won't be unbelieving, and so that you won't fall away in the end. Our uh, confession, the Westminster Confession of Faith, talks about this, and I know sometimes the language in the confession is a little archaic, but there's just one sentence about this in chapter 17, one single sentence. This is how it begins, so tune in here. The language is difficult, but you can follow. The writers here say this, summarize it this way, they whom God has accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, in other words, people who are believers in Jesus, all these people can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but they shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. They will not totally nor finally fall. Paul says it a little more succinctly in Philippians that Christ who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the last day. He will. There's not doubt or question about that. So do not despair in the warnings. Do not let it shatter your confidence. Don't think that you're accidentally going to stumble into the hardness of final unbelief. Jesus holds on to you. He does. And yet, still, we want to not let that put this down. We need to listen to and heed Christ's warnings to us here. The warnings in Scripture are perfectly compatible with doctrines of assurance, the doctrines of eternal security, and doctrines of perseverance of the saints. Those things walk hand in hand. Warnings are one of the actual means that the Lord uses to preserve our perseverance, to cause us to persevere. He rumbles the car to cause us to open our eyes and to grip again to the wheel, to be attentive and then to resume, pursue faithfulness in walking as Christ walked. This is part of the Lord's kindness and mercy to us. We're thankful then for it. We don't need to run from these warnings or hide from them, but we also don't want to ignore them or regard them as unimportant. The author says in verse 12, take care, brothers. Take care. You need to hear this. Take care. He says, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. This message is not just for a select few that were really off the rails. In any of you, take care. Now, the question then is, how do we do that? How do we take care? How do we embrace the Lord's warning to us to increase our perseverance 
so that we will hold fast to our confidence in Jesus to the end so that the Lord's rumble strip will do his good work in us. I'm going to try to answer that. How do we do that? And and I'm going to try to be as practical as I can because I think the text here in Hebrews gives us some very tangible help as to how to take care. But before I get as practical as I'm able, I just want to remind us of something that you already know, but you still need to hear. So don't tune me out here. Tune me out in a different part. All of our work to take care not to harden our hearts to unbelief will always and only happen by the power of God's Spirit. It is only the grace of Jesus that makes us able to do this. That's why we thank and praise Him for this and not ourselves. So some people will treat the cross of of Jesus like a landing pad. That, uh, uh, you know, I I pray a prayer, I accept and believe in Jesus, I, I get saved, and then the ride is over. I have landed. There's something to that in the sense that the cross of Christ is really sure, it's really accomplished, but the cross of Jesus is not like a landing pad, it's more like a launch pad. Uh, That the saving work of Jesus is in us fully accomplished, we are now saved, but that launch pad then out of that salvation grows us in holiness and faithfulness by his grace. He is then softening us, warming us like Plato in his hands so that we'll be conformed to his heart and not be hardened as we were in the rebellion. So I just need to remind us of that. This is by his power, not our own. And yet, it is by his power, so we, we want to walk in it. So then how do we, by God's power, take care not to harden our hearts in unbelief? I want to just give us in these last minutes three ways in which I think the author helps us in that. And they all come from verse 13. Let me back up and read 12 into it. Verse 12, he says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But, now here's the contrast. Here's how we would take care to do that so we wouldn't have an unbelieving heart. Verse 13, but exhort one another. What's that fancy word, exhort, again? Some other translations say encourage one another, which is a good translation and helps me. And you'll notice here, the author does not say, let me exhort or encourage you, although he does that. He doesn't say, let the preacher exhort or encourage you, although I hope I do that. He says, exhort each other. You need it from one another. In fact, I need this from you. And to encourage one another does not just mean uh, we say things like, I like your tie or you smell nice. As nice as that is. Oh, what that happened this morning, actually. Which, thank you. Um, I'm glad that you do like my tie. It's nice to know. And yet, something like that does nothing to guard me against hardness of heart. 
So encouraging each other also doesn't mean we just quote Bible verses at people. We know God's word is powerful, but we can't just use them like a band-aid on brokenness. If we are to guard our hardness of heart through exhorting or encouragement, the author says, encourage one another. He says later chapters, encourage one another by stirring one another up in love and good works. So we want to stir up love in someone. Love for God by reminding them who God is, of his mercy, of his patience, of his presence. And stir one another up to love of neighbor, that we're reminded to just be patient with each other and to think about how we can care for one another well and even the neighbors that may not be believers well. Then we're also to stir up good works in each other, meaning we recognize the moments of God's grace where he is playing out good works in our lives, pointing it out and saying, I'm glad for that. Thank you for doing that. We appreciate that. We praise God for that in you. It also may mean that we address times in others where we see that good works are missing. This is also a form of encouragement to confront sin in someone else. Now, we need to be careful here, very careful. It's easy to go off the rails. Uh, we don't want to become the police <laughs> of morality or, or, or turn ourselves into you know, harsh critics who are kind of pointing out everybody's uh, things. Uh, we want to recognize sin in ourselves first, the log in our own eye before the speck in our brothers. And we also want to be careful that we're calling out things that actually are sin, not just our own personal preferences. So things like calling out someone's style of clothes or their parenting styles or their manners and how they ought or ought not to act. We're going to deal with sin here, but there are times when we are too afraid that we will be seen as judgmental. And so we allow particular patterns of sin in our brothers to continue. And we just avoid dealing with it. I just don't want to talk about it. Instead of lovingly encouraging our brothers. So something like, brother, whoever this is, I have noticed this in you over the course of time. And I am concerned about the effect it might have on you. That it may be hardening your heart. Would you like to talk about it? How can I help you in this? That's really startling if someone does that to you. It's kind of embarrassing, but I'll tell you from my own experience, when someone has lovingly done that to me, there are a few times when I have felt as loved as when I've been confronted in that way. Are you willing to exhort one another like this? Are you willing to receive an exhortation from someone else like this? Exhortation is God's grace to soften our hearts 
so that they will not be hardened. That's the first one, exhortation. Let's look at the second one, verse 13. He says, but exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today. In fact, that word today, if you'll notice, is repeated throughout the text. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. And this today is not about impatience. We know sometimes there is wisdom in putting some things off till later. This word today is about the importance of it. That things are not just pushed down the road because every day that passes may be another day that the Play-Doh is left out in the open air to dry. We need to feed our bodies with food every day. We need rest to rest our minds with sleep every day. We also need to soften our hearts with encouragement every day. Now you might be sitting there going, yeah, I need encouragement every day. I need to get somebody to encourage me more often. You can maybe nudge your spouse or somebody close and say, hey, could you encourage me a little more? But you notice there, he doesn't say, go be encouraged, go out and get some encouragement, although that can be good and even appropriate. He says, encourage one another every day. When I encourage someone else, That may be the way the Lord is softening their heart, but he is also softening mine as well as I encourage them. So what are you waiting for? Don't wait to exhort your brothers. Spiritual procrastination will harden you. Take care not to let these things tempt you into tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow until tomorrow never comes. It is God's grace to soften your heart that we would encourage one another today. That's the second one. Finally, very briefly, Here's the third, verse 13 again. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So that's the third. We want to confront the deceitfulness of our sin, especially. Sin is deceitful. It is a liar that promises happiness, but will cheat us out of our lives. And one of the ways that sin lies to us is to normalize itself. To say, well, everybody sins. To cause us even to look at other people that might struggle with the same things we do so that we feel okay. Or even to look at sins in our own lives and think, well, the Lord didn't do anything to me last time, so it must be okay this time, and we think it's fine. If you see patterns of sin in your life, tendencies in which you are tempted, you're like every person I know. You're like me. 
If you don't know your own sin tendencies, just ask someone who knows you, and they can probably tell you. But because you know your sin tendencies, because these exist, do not ever allow yourself to make peace with those patterns of sin. That is its deceit. It lies to you that way, and do not believe that lie. If you allow your sin to go unchecked, it will harden you as it is easier to go back again and again and again and again until we fall away. We want then, by and because of the grace of Jesus, to confront the deceit of our particular sins even repeated sins, then to confess them again before Jesus, to mourn of their wickedness, to repent of them, and then to pick ourselves up by the power of the Spirit to be renewed again. You will likely need encouragement to be able to do this. Need encouragement daily, as often as it is called today, because it is hard but do not give up on this. It is worth it to take care that your heart would not be hardened. We want to be conformed to Jesus and to be able to enter into his rest. We'll talk about that next week. Would you pray with me? Lord, we praise you for these rumble strips from your word. We do not want to end up in the ditch somewhere. We want to be faithful followers of you. Would you guard us against even the hardness of thinking that we can do this on our own? We need your grace, we need your power, we need your hope, and we need your help. Would you help us to cling to you, to find life in you? And Lord, would you cause us to believe, deepen our unbelief? We ask all of this humbly, in Jesus' name, amen.